You are listening to Explore by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. While Richard and Daniel are in Italy covering the Giro, I've come down to St. Leonard's-on-Sea in Sussex on the south coast of England to meet a travel photographer and cyclist called Roth Smith. Now, a couple of months ago, a photo story in the New York Times created quite a buzz on social media, and you may have seen links to it and seen the article. It was a series of self-portraits taken during lockdown called A Cyclist on the English Landscape. There's a link to the article in the show notes if you want to have a look, and I recommend you do because the photographs are absolutely stunning. Roth wrote, I live in a faded seaside town called St. Leonard's-on-Sea in Sussex on the south coast of England. If you've not heard of it, you're in good company. It's not on anybody's list of celebrated English beauty spots. Indeed, most of my riding is across flat coastal marsh or down at heel seafront promenades. There's history here, of course. This is England, after all. The lonely marshes I pedal across most days are where William the Conqueror landed his men in 1066. Otherwise, except for being a haunt for smugglers, this stretch of coast dozed away the centuries until the Victorians brought the railways down from London. Now, the feature caught my eye for another reason, because St Leonard's is where I lived when I trained to become a journalist more than 25 years ago now, which uh, pulls me up a little short. I lived just off the seafront, and I walked, sometimes bent double against the wind, down to Marine Court, where the Westminster Press Journalism School was based. Marine Court is quite a striking building, designed to look like the upper decks of the Queen Mary Ocean Liner. And when it opened in 1938, its 14 storeys made it the tallest residential building in the UK. And as Roth says, there is a lot of history here. Norman's Bay is just down the coast, and I've driven down through Battle, which is inland, uh, of course, named for the Battle of Hastings. Hastings itself is one direction, and beyond that, Sir Paul McCartney lives in the countryside near Rye. And even further beyond that, there's the eerie calm of Dungeness and its nuclear power station. And then the other way is Bexhill, Eastbourne, and then Brighton. And I've got to head in that direction because I'm due to meet Roth just down the coast at Bexhill-on-Sea. So I'd better get rolling. And while I do, have a listen to this. This is coming up on Explore starting on Thursday, June the 3rd. Scottish League Division 1, Edrionians 1, Race Rovers 2, A United 0, Heart of Mendothian 3, Clydebank 2, Alloa 2, Dunfermline Athletic 1, Hamilton Academicals 1, Falkirk 2, Alloa Athletic, Edrionians, Heart of Midlothian, Hamilton Academical, Queen's Park and Queen of the South. These are names I associate with the Saturday tea times of my childhood, when I'd sit down to watch the football results on BBC's Grandstand programme, and the mention of Stenhouse Muir and Stirling Albion would conjure up images of... Well, images of what exactly? I really didn't know. They sounded exotic, far-away places, with a touch of romance and mystery that the more familiar English clubs seemed to lack. Scottish League Division 2, Arbro 3, Queen of the South 2. East 5-4, Albion Rovers 3. Meadowbank and East Derlingshire, evening kick-off at 7.30. I'm Lionel Burney and I grew up two doors down from Simon Gill. Hello! As children, our two obsessions were football and then a little later, cycling. We spent our days watching football, playing football and reading about football. And in summer, we'd head off into the Hertfordshire lanes on our bikes, pretending we were riding the Tour de France. 
Last year, life was put on pause by the pandemic, and during the depths of lockdown, we talked about what we'd like to do when restrictions eased and we were allowed to travel again. I said I wanted to do a multi-day bike ride somewhere, a trip from A to Z, taking the time to slow down and enjoy the journey more than rush to the destination. Simon said he wanted to photograph each of the Scottish Football League grounds, and when I looked at the map, I realised we could combine the two ideas. The Tour de Cosse was born, the beautiful game on two wheels. Cowdenbeath, four. Stenhouse Viewer, nil. Fourfire Aesthetic, one. Sterling Albion, one. Brecon City, one. Stranra, one. And so, over 13 days, riding from Gretna to Dingwall and covering more than 1,300 kilometres, we'll visit each one of those 42 Scottish Football League grounds and explore the countryside, towns and cities in between. There are so many questions to be answered. Will we make it as far as Forfar without falling out? Why do Dundee and Dundee United play across the street from each other? Why are Cowden Beath called the Blue Brazil? What actually is Iron Brew? And do my ancestors really hail from Burnie? The Tour de Cosse will be documented in daily episodes of Explore, and you can also follow our journey by watching our slow-moving docs at thecyclingpodcast.com. Hello there, Roth. How are you doing? Good, how are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. I can't really handshake or maybe a no, fist bump fist we can bump. do. Yes. Yeah. So tell me, uh, where are we, first of all? Well, we're uh, on the seafront at Bex Hill. It's uh, Nice little old seaside town, that, uh, quite old-fashioned, and uh, it's one of the places I ride through almost every morning on my way out to uh, the marsh, where I take a lot of my photography. And I don't want to jump to conclusions, but that's not a south coast of England accent I'm picking up here. No, it's not. Um, I'm, I'm a, sort of a walking geography lesson. I was born in the U.S., uh, raised in New England. Uh, I'm Australian, <laughs> and I live... My wife is from here, from uh, St. Leonard's, and so I've been living here now, or sort of basing here now. Uh, usually I'm traveling overseas, but the past year I haven't been. I've just been sitting here, not quite idle. I've been out with my bike and my camera, but otherwise just sitting. Well, we'll talk about that. I think the plan is to go for a little ride somewhere. I mean, we haven't been terribly lucky with the weather, but it could have been worse. I feel like we've been putting this meeting off, waiting for the English summer to get started. But you'll know as an American Aussie who's lived here long enough to know that the the English summer uh, is pretty unpredictable. Well, I was out, I actually passed through Bex Hill at 3.30 this morning on my way out to uh, the marsh to see if I could get some uh, moon shots. It was clear then, and I was thinking, this is, it was calm too. And I thought, well, then the cloud banks built up. I never even got out my camera, and now we have moody weather. Let's call it that. It is moody, isn't it? It's a kind of grey, white blanket above us there, uh, pillows, kind of uh, scatter cushions of, of cloud all uh, on top of one another. Not much blue sky, but I promise you, as I drove down, I did, oh, I did see some blue sky. It, it comes and goes. It, it just, yeah. If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. Um, I've, I've discovered that out in the marsh with my, with my camera. Once I was uh, waiting to take some moon shots, cloud bank came over and I was just kicking myself. So I, one of those mornings you get out at 3 a.m. and this is last summer and um, 
I just thought, well, I'm here, I'll wait. And I just stood there and waited, and the clouds sort of broke up. The sun started to rise. There was these beautiful pink-ribbed clouds. Had I just packed up and gone away, I would have never have had that. So you just learn to be patient and let it do its thing. Well, let's go for our little ride and see if we can duck any rain showers. And then uh, when we come back, we'll talk about this fantastic project that uh, has, I guess, sustained you through lockdown. But first of all, let's, uh, let's head out to a road that I remember from many, many years ago cycling down, the old Marsh Road. But, I mean, I couldn't tell you how you get to it now. Um, so blindfolded. <laughs> Perfect. Roth, lead the way. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimise your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalised analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Explore by the Cycling Podcast is supported by Super Sapiens, a system of continuous glucose monitoring that uses the Abbott LibraSense Glucose Sport Biosensor to give real-time updates on the Super Sapiens app. For diabetics, this technology can be life-altering and even life-saving, but for all athletes, Super Sapiens can help you understand how your body processes and responds to fuel, so you can optimise your training and recovery. And as Super Sapiens founder Phil Sutherland says, everyone is an athlete, so whether you're looking to win a race, or in my case ride from one end of Scotland to the other, this technology can provide some valuable insights, and I'm looking forward to receiving my biosensors and giving it a try for the first time myself in the next few days. As Richard knows, when we're working together on the Tour de France, I can get grouchy when I'm underfueled, and I'll spare him from making the obvious joke by saying that my problem sometimes might be being overfueled. But the thing about Super Sapiens is that it can give you some data that means you're not relying on a hunch when it comes to fueling. If you'd like to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Oh, we're out of the wind. We've just returned to Bexhill-on-Sea after a ride out to Pevensey and back on the old Marsh Road. Very much a ride of two halves, wasn't it, Roth? Uh, <laughs> we had stiff headwind on the way out and a lovely invisible helping hand on the way back. And now we're sitting in one of these delightful shelters uh, just up from the, the beach, the pebbly beach here at Bexhill. And uh, we're keeping out of the wind. Um, but one thing struck me, Roth, is that this is all a bit late in the day for you, bike riding at lunchtime. Very late in the day for me. Uh, I was out this morning at, um, well, I left home at little after three, and was, I was passing this shelter about 3.30 in this morning on my way out to Pevensey to try to get some shots of the full moon. Mostly a reconnoitering this morning. Tomorrow's the full moon, so I just wanted to know where I need to be tomorrow. So, yeah, this is late for me, very late. And, uh, well, tell me about your bike, because it's uh, really eye-catching. It's uh, a classic Tourer. It's got the, the gear shifters on the bottom of the drop handlebars. You've got a, a Brooks saddle. You've got uh, panniers front and back. I guess you carry your camera equipment out on, on the pannier. But tell me the story behind the bike, because it's a significant color, isn't it? Well, yes. Um I've always, before, even before this project, I was always out before dawn on my bike. That was just my time for, for going out and, and enjoying quiet 
And so when I had this bicycle made, I had an idea of the color I wanted. And I chose this mauve pink color because they were the colors of the dawn. And it just suited, suited me. This is my bike. It was a custom bike made just for me. It was the bike I wanted when I was a kid. You know, when you're a little kid, and some kids, they grow up, they wanted to race. You know, that's all, and, and fair enough. Not me. From the moment I got on my bicycle, I saw it as a way to see the world. I was off in my mind riding to Zanzibar and everywhere else, and I would see these old tours, old school tours. Well, they weren't old school then, they were cutting edge tours. And I would see them going by, and I, that's what I wanted. And, you know, I never. Never could quite get there when I was a kid. You know, lawn mowing money would take you so far. But um, uh, so, you know, I had a Schwinn Varsity instead. <laughs> but this was the bike I wanted, and, and so I had it made. And who made it for you? Well, a good friend of mine named Mark Riley. He was at Enigma at the time, and a brilliant frame maker, and a lovely, lovely man. He later went off and founded his own company, Riley Cycle Works. And again, his frames are, are well, well known, well respected. And um, unfortunately, he died last uh, last March, quite unexpectedly. And uh, this bike, which was already special to me because it had been made by my friend, becomes all the more special now. And uh, I like to think of him being along on the ride when uh, when I'm out there. Uh, he he built it, and uh, he let me photograph him when he was building it. Uh, beautiful art. I mean, I. I think few people can realize until they see a frame being built by a really fine master frame builder, the, the building itself is an art. This is, a, this is a, a kinetic sculpture. So it becomes very special to me. Not only is it, is it the bike I always wanted, it was built by a friend of mine, and now it's a friend who's no longer with us, but his bike remains, and so it's special. Lovely. I mean, you say it was the bike you wanted when you were a kid. That's obviously when cycling started for you you discovered it as a child where where were you growing up and and how did you uh, form a relationship with cycling well i um i've had a very interesting sort of very different growing up i actually um when i got my first bike when uh, we were living in the south side of chicago we had little money at the time and i wasn't expecting a bicycle you know, other kids i was seven and there was other kids were getting bicycles, and i mean i just thought well that's not going to happen for me my mother had managed to put together five dollars and bought this second hand it was a girl's bike it was this old schwinn eisenhower era clunky schwinn girl's bike kind of a dark green with white two-tone and i got off the school bus and i saw this bike she'd parked it in the driveway as though it was a car on its kickstand and i my first thought was who's over who's visiting us and I, I had no idea that was going to be my bicycle. And when I heard it was mine, I was just, I was over the moon. The fact that it was a girl's bike was irrelevant. I could not have cared less. It was a bicycle. And uh, from the moment I got on it, I imagined myself going everywhere. This, I didn't want to race. I wanted to see the world. That was, that was where it all started. So when did cycling become something that took you beyond your neighborhood? Well, Later on, we moved to New Hampshire, which is the northeast. And we lived in, I spent the rest of my growing up in a very rural mountain area. And I think the first proper expedition, as I thought of it at the time, was over to the Bear Camp River to go fishing. Bear Camp River was big, dark waters. You could catch anything in the Bear Camp. They had, you know, 
like pickerel with sharp teeth and they had you know, leeches in the water. It was, it was our, our own private Orinoco and it was about 12, 13 miles away. To me, that was, that was a long way off. And we were talking earlier, you know, when you're cycling, so many things happen. You see so many little things. The, the miles take on their own personalities. There's, there's no anonymous miles. So the 13 miles that I rode to get to the Bear Camp River, they were storied miles. You know, a bend in the uh, road would mean something. A, an idea would come, a sparkle in the water of a little stream. or you know, So there were storied miles. So they were filled with, with, with distance, proper distance, not like these air miles where you just lob them off by the thousand. These are real miles. And um, that was when I began, you know, imagining you know, if just these 13 miles can be so exciting, so packed with invent and adventure and experience, I was thinking to myself, imagine 1,300 miles. Imagine 13,000 miles. And so you start thinking in these grand terms. And so I had, I had visions of, of setting off and seeing the world, living on my bicycle, which at first didn't really quite pan out. Real life kind of came in. I, I went, to, went to university and became a journalist and then migrated to Australia and, and uh, lived a suburban life through my 20s. I, I had a, a, a touring bike. I'd bought one when I was, I, I finished university at the University of Sydney and bought myself a touring bike. Our old Gemini uh, World Randonneur. I remember getting it, it had, it had 26 inch tires, which they told me at the shop, you could replace these in third world countries. And, you know, and this is what I, you know, that bit of real politic just sold me on this bike. It was 15 speed. And, and I was, again, real life. I suddenly got a job. It was kind of nice having money after being an impoverished student. And, you know, the tour was going to be something I'd do next year and next year and next year. And eventually I found myself in my early 30s and I was working in the Melbourne Age, a newspaper. And the tram drivers went on strike. And I didn't have a way to get into work. And I remembered my old touring bike, which was gathering dust and cobwebs out in the shed. And I had this cheeky idea that maybe I could try riding my bike into work. It seemed like a mad thing to do, but I, what the heck. So I wheeled the bike out, pumped up the tires, went in the next day. You know, I, I was completely clueless about riding in traffic. I, you know, city rush hour in the middle of a public transport strike. It was a, nearly a disaster. And I, but I got into work and survived the ride. And I spent the day alternately dreading the ride home and looking forward to it because it was exciting. After a, the tram drivers were out for a few days, and by then I was completely hooked back on cycling. And it sort of grew from there. I became a cyclist, commuting in and out. And then those old dreams started coming back about, about tours. Um, I, I went from the Melbourne Age, worked for Time Magazine for a while, and still, and finally one day I just quit Time. Wonderful job, but I just, I had to go. And I put everything into storage, put some, put some panniers on the tour, and set off from Sydney, and uh, did a 10,000-mile, nine-month trek around Australia. No rush, I was taking my time. I, I, I didn't just stay along the coast, I went inland a long ways, and back to the coast, and inland, I wove all over the place. I stayed in Aboriginal communities, mining camps, million-acre cattle stations, sheep stations, you know, all kinds of places. I had some fabulous experiences, met loads of really wonderful people. 
And along the way, National Geographic took an interest in my story. I, was, I, I knew one of the editors there and been sending him letters, snail mail. This was before, before e email was the big deal. And uh, my letters were getting passed around the National Geographic building. By the time I got back around to, uh, to Melbourne, and I was still on my way back to Sydney, uh, I heard that they decided to make my story into a three-part series in the magazine. And that became the start of a, what's now been a 25-year relationship with National Geographic. And I got there on a, on a bicycle. So the cycling and the journalism, the written journalism, predated the photography? Yes and no. I was a photographer first. I studied, you know, I, I'm, again, a really weird mix. I'm gloriously officially unqualified. I have a degree in archaeology, a degree in geology, and Old Norse literature. So, you know, the perfect qualifications for a photojournalist. Um, I was doing photography, but then a, uh, this was in the early 80s in Sydney, and uh, the job came up, a writing job came up to be the mining writer. Now, that doesn't sound terribly interesting, maybe, but in 19, early 80s, there were mines opening up all over Australia. It was the start of the big gold rush boom, the minerals boom. So the mining writer was the guy who got to travel around first class going all over the country or, you know, companies would send their private jets to pick up writers for these wonderful junkets. And uh, so I had a choice of either shooting in Sydney and going to the dark room or hopping on private jets and jetting around the outback. It was a pretty easy choice. So I became a, a writer and then gave away photography for some years and um, just really kind of eventually got back into it and missed it. So you've seen lots of parts of the world on, on two wheels. I mean, when we can talk about the project that you did when lockdown struck, I mean, first of all, whereabouts were you when uh, this, this great cloud of uh, coronavirus was kind of covering our world? Well, I was in uh, Ecuador, South America. I was shooting um, the last of the world's greatest Panama hat weavers. And, and these are people that can weave Panama hats with 4,000 weaves per square inch. I mean, it, it's like the finest, finer than the finest linen. And I was having a wonderful time shooting this. And I really felt, I mean, COVID was around, but I was in a remote part of Ecuador. And it seemed as though I was another world. I was, you know, and it was at that point. You know, we were, it was like travel in the 1980s. You know, I'd go shoot in the morning, then go off to this little beach hut and have a couple of tuna steaks and some rice and plantains for a couple of bucks and go back and shoot in the afternoon. It was wonderful. And then, but then hard news began to arrive, as did COVID. And I literally got out of there um, as COVID was arriving in Ecuador in a massive way. And a few days after I left, there was there were literally bodies in the streets in in Guayaquil. It was it was really unpleasant. And I came back. There. I, I passed through Spain as they were closing that down, and got into England just as England locked down. So I was hugely relieved. But at the same time, I had nothing to do. <laughs> Magazine assignments were over. So I mean, how long has St Leonard's on Sea and this part of the Sussex coast been home? Well. Um, I guess in a realistic way, this past year. I mean, before, you know, I was traveling a lot, um, but this past year, it you know, I've been nowhere. Uh, the other day, I went, I took a train up to London to see somebody, and it was the first time I'd been on a train in fourteen months. 
for the most part, I've been no further than where I go on my bicycle in the mornings. Uh, Pevensey was probably about as far as I went. So, I mean, when you're thinking of an assignment for National Geographic or any of the other people that you do work for, I mean, there's no limit on where you could travel to. Um, you could take yourself to Ecuador or any other corner of the world, and then all of a sudden, you couldn't take yourself beyond the end of the street. No, I mean, in, uh, in the course of my career, um, I've been to every continent, over 100 countries. Um, I actually cycled at the South Pole. Uh, I was on assignment a few years ago. I, I like to think of it as my round-the-world bicycle trip, because if you go around the South Pole, you've covered every single line of longitude. These world record holders that claim 80 days, I did it in 10 seconds. Kinnis didn't want to know about it, but I think I deserve an asterisk. Done at altitude. It's at 10,000 feet, the South Pole. But, you know, so, I mean, I was literally going places like the South Pole, the jungles in New Guinea, um, uh, excavated a, a Portuguese treasure ship on the treasure coast, in, uh, on the skeleton coast in Namibia. Um, you know, did, I was on the Serengeti for weeks shooting a cheetah story. You know, so I was used to travel a lot and suddenly not going anywhere at all. And, you know, even in, in parts of the lockdown, we couldn't really leave our own particular council area. There was, you know, they had the various phases. So, you know, suddenly I, I couldn't go anywhere and I had to try to, um, I wanted to do something. I wanted to keep my eye in. Um, I started writing a, a children's book, but then I wanted to keep my eye in photographically as well. And so I started taking my camera with me on my morning bike rides and I decided I was going to shoot them as though I was shooting a travel assignment. At first, you know, I look at some of my early efforts and I kind of wince and I, and I think, oh, ouch, you know, that was, that was not good. It's very difficult, very different to shoot yourself on a bicycle and, and try to compose everything. The challenges became addictive. I would come back, and I, I'm, I'm always a, a stern critic of my own work. I'm really, really... So I would come back and I would look at what I shot and, you know, and I'd just be kicking myself. No, you should have done this or I should have done that. Or, this is where I could have been. And... After a while, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm realized I'm studying the, the sunrise times, the phases of the moon, the tide tables, everything, and, and, and taking notes. I have little notepad, notebooks and, and jot down, you know, what time I bring bring a phone, not because I wanted to make a phone call, but because I could look at the time. Okay, the shadow falls here at such and such, and what day? Because the sun's moving around throughout the year. I was taking all these notes, observing all these things, and and, and shooting and shooting and shooting. Um, you, there, there's a whole separate skill set to, you know, people often ask, you know, how do you, well, how do you do it? That, you know, technically it's not that difficult. You set up a tripod. I use something called an intervalometer, which allows me to set a, a whatever delay I want. And then the camera will fire off as many shots as I want. Typically, I'll do anything from seven seconds to 40 seconds and maybe shoot three to five shots, depending on what I, what I want. So that part's easy. But putting yourself in the frame, it's not just like, well, I'll just ride through the picture. Because if you're, if you're doing this with, you know, kind of art, artistically or for, you know, uh, the kind of quality that you would expect to see in National Geographic or the New York Times, you, you, you can't just ride into the frame. You, you need to know exactly where you're going to be. And six inches from 100 meters away can make a difference. You, you, you want to know where you, what's the backdrop going to be? Will your head be visible? Uh, because, you know, you don't want to have a disembodied cycle bicycle sitting in this dark shadow. I mean, you, you look at where the shadows fall, where the light falls. Uh, you, I find myself studying the, the foreshortened angles of a cyclist. And I can tell you, 
bitter experience. Nobody looks good from behind on a bicycle. No, I mean, I've even watched the Tour de France people just to, just to, 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 look, and to, to look at camera angles. And, and, and even they, and they're, they're way fitter than me. And I'm thinking, no, you, you don't, you're not looking good from behind. You want to have a bit of an angle. So you, you learn all of these little, these little tricks, but then actually being able to do it uh, at the right time, at the right second. Um, you know, I would make multiple takes of a shot. Um, I think the, the hardest, most difficult one I, uh, I did was on a place called Battery Hill. It's about a 14% grade. And I had to ride all the way down it. And what I wanted was to be coming up. It's, there's like a tunnel of leaves and the sunlight was raking across. So I wanted to be emerging from the shadows with just the right amount of sunlight striking my face and the bicycle. So you're just emerging from like this, this tunnel of leaves. With, with them, the background, uh, the Sussex countryside spread out way below. And, uh, you know, it looked great. I mean, the, the, the concept was great. But to get that precise, and I had to be right in the right part of the road so that I had the, the dense shadow behind me. And I had, I, you know, I, I choose my, my, my cycling jerseys, my tops. I take a couple of spares with me. So I have something that will contrast, you know, and, and cycling caps, which work. I call it my wardrobe in my camera bag. But that, I did 35 trips up that 14% grade. And, you know, by the end of it, you know, I was, I was just fried. I still remember, you know, I'd done, I say, 35 trips up and down this, this, this grade. And um, on the way back, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of trudging. And the cyclist rides by me and goes, don't worry, not far to the top. <laughs> I was like, if you knew. <laughs> you know? But, you know, that's, that's what it takes, really, to, to do this. And, you know, again, uh, like this morning, I, w I left home at 3 o'clock. Out. And I didn't really expect to get any images. And in fact, I didn't. But you know, I'm, I'm going out making reconnoitering, so I know where the moon is going to be tomorrow. I mean, I can plot it where you know it'll be slightly different than today. But I know where I want to be tomorrow morning. So it's knowing where you want to be, knowing how you know, what you want to set up, and you know, it's uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, in terms of. Uh doing 35 reps of the same hill or riding past the camera multiple times. I mean, you're against the clock as well, in a way, because the light is going to be against you at some point. Uh, it, totally. Because I like, my favorite time to shoot is just before dawn, maybe a quarter of an hour before dawn. I start shooting a half an hour because you get some surprises. Um, and I shoot after, you know, well after uh, sunrise. Well, But my, that's a, there's a sweet spot of about 15 minutes before sunrise to about five or 10 minutes after. And so, yes, the light is changing. I mean, I have, I've done, again, where I've done multiple takes, and it looks like I've done it on different days. It honestly looks like completely different pictures because the light is changing dramatically. And sometimes it changes, you know, you, sometimes you get like two really good shots in completely different light, but often you, you lose the light. And of course, it's an uncontrolled environment. So I might be hitting it, hitting my marks exactly right. And, you know, I have a Range Rover right on my tail. Game over. You know, and there's just nothing you can do about it. So you have this you know, uncontrolled environment, light changing. And you, and so you're acting fast. You know, I, I come back, quick, look quickly at my, uh, at what's in the frame, see where I need to be. 
you know, and sometimes I, I look at it and I think, oh, I've, I've got this completely wrong. I need to, I need to be a hundred meters away. And, you know, I'm just grabbing stuff and running and trying to, trying to, to, to get this, you know, and so, sometimes I come back home, you know, when it works, it's just fabulous. It's that wonderful feeling. You look in the frame and you go, I've got it, you know, and you go right, you know. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, what, what equipment are you using? Digital or film or, and is there a sort of, if it's digital, would you take the camera home and not look until you got home, or and is there a punch the air moment? There is a punch the air moment. Yes. Um, well, no, I use a digital. I have a, a, a Pro DSLR. It's the thirty megs. It's a Canon five D four for for people who, who like these things. It's a top range Canon Pro camera, and it has a full frame sensor, which is really good for shooting in low light because I do shoot in very low light a lot of the time. Yes, I have that. I have. Four or five lenses I bring with me. I have three manual focus Zeiss lenses for when I'm if I'm a, a it's going to be a stationary shot, and then two autofocus Canon lenses uh, for movement. Um, and then in that same camera bag, I, I'll have I've got uh, some neutral density filters if I need to um, uh, if I want longer exposures. I seldom do, but I have them there just in case. And then I have what I call my wardrobe spare jerseys, spare caps, because, you know, sometimes you, you realize you, you need to, I need to stand out from the background so you can see this bicycle is defined. So, you know, I, I realize I've got the wrong color jersey. So, you know, there I'll be, you know, sometimes when it's minus three and I'm, you know, changing my shirt and <laughs> it's cold. And oh, I realize that the jacket is too dark, so I have to shoot without a jacket. And, um, you know, it's just freezing. But just I, you do it because you want the, you want the picture. I mean, that's if you want to be comfortable, you stay home in bed. You, you suffered for your art, Roth. I've, I've got I've got that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the obvious question really struck me when I first saw the feature published in the New York Times on on the New York Times website. I must say, it had been sent to me by so many different people over uh, the course of a forty-eight hour period. It, colleagues, other photographers I know, uh, friends who know I'm into cycling. And the thing that immediately caught my eye was because I, I, I kind of recognized the, the, the geography because I'd lived down here. And what I didn't really understand at the time was, do I recognize it because this is a uniquely, uh, you know, distinct part of southern England? And it's just sort of uh, some memories from my past uh, uh, just sort of playing on my mind. Um, it wasn't until I delved deeper and really looked at the photographs and, and read the accompanying words that I realized these were self-portraits. I mean, and that was the thing that really kind of flipped the switch for me because, as you say, taking pictures of another cyclist when you're behind the camera is one thing, but setting these shots up and you riding into the frame is another. I mean, why did you want to be in the pictures as well? Why didn't you make it easy for yourself? You could have given somebody a few quid to come along and be your model on a bike. Well, partly, I mean, this was also a time of member social distancing. You couldn't, we, you, you couldn't. I mean, you, you, and of course, I had had zero money, no income. This, this was this was a, a self assigned assignment. So I had, you know, no money and what no one allowed. You weren't really allowed to go out with anybody else. Also, you know, I, I wanted a particular look in the in the in the pictures. So, um, you know, I I, cho I choose my my clothing. You know, it's not not, not branded or it's it's it's. Uh, I'm looking for an old school kind of romanticized, if you will, image of cycling 
on the on the English landscape. So I, I needed someone that was going to be, you know, I knew how I wanted the, the clothes to look and how I wanted the bicycle to look. I had this old school tour, which worked really well with, with the style of shooting I had in mind. And I guess also there's a final thing is that I am a horror, I've learned, I'm a horrible director, producer, taskmaster. I mean, I hate myself. I mean, I can't stand working for me. So how could I expect anyone else to do it? I mean, I'm not going to get anyone to ride 35 times up a 14% grade and, and tell them, nah, didn't have it, sorry, six inches to the right next time. One time I, I went out to uh, probably the farthest distance I rode was out to a place called Wartling, which is out by Hurstman Zoo. It was minus five when I left, bitterly cold. I rode out there, but I knew there was these big oaks, big ivy-colored oaks. Of course, the oaks are all, you know, the ivy's all brown. It's winter. They're going to be covered with frost. And I knew there was a hill. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a great shot. I really like this image. I had it in my mind. So I rode all the way out there. I left by starlight an hour and a half to get out there. Freezing. I had to take my coat off because I needed a, a lighter color to be against the... Um, the oaks so it would stand out, freezing. And I, I, I shot these images and I, I got back home and I'm, I'm looking at them and I realized that the camera was just tilted down just maybe a quarter of an inch. The, this perspective was, was just wrong. And I was looking at it and I hated those pictures because I put so much in. The next, that night, it was clear again. It was minus five. I rode hour and a half back to the same spot did the same shoot over again just to get the picture that I wanted. I'm not really going to find too many people that are going to put up with that. Um, like I say, I, I was angry with myself. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Explore is supported by Science in Sport and in readiness for our trip to Scotland next week I've stocked up on Science in Sport goodies to help us on our way. Now we're not going to be racing, most of our riding will be at a pretty low intensity although we will be carrying luggage and because we're stopping several times along the way we're going to be in for some long days. We might be outdoors for 12 or 14 hours and the weather might be chilly or wet. And I think there's a tendency to think of sports nutrition as being all about the high-end performance, but actually performance is performance, even if you're not pushing on. We want to ensure we're in good shape at the end of each day so that we're not starting the next one in the red, and that is going to come down largely to our fueling strategy and getting that right. So I've got bars, gels and the drink powders to supplement our regular food and keep us well topped up. And if you want to get 25% off your Science in Sport products, you can do so at the scienceinsport.com website with the code SISCP25. So, Roth, I mean, one of the things about lockdown and cycling was that we all became over-familiar with our local environments, really. I mean, we couldn't go any further for a long time. We had to stay within uh, riding distance of home and people were encouraged not to go too far. Um, and in normal times, that kind of, repetitive uh, the mundanity of riding the same stretches of road i know i feel it you know the first couple of miles out of home before i get the choice of whether to go left or straight on or right sometimes feels like a bit of a drag what certainly did before lockdown i think you know lockdown has forced us to reappraise our relationship with all sorts of things including the freedom to just go out i mean how has this project um, sort of changed your relationship with cycling 
or has it and also with the with the area that you've lived in um albeit maybe come and gone from and what have you kind of noticed about the place just by exploring on two wheels it's changed my perspective on, on cycling but I, I should say it, it's renewed it when i was little as i've mentioned earlier and i got this bicycle and i was you know riding 13 miles over to the to the bear camp river to go fishing and finding so much sense of travel and i've found that again you know i can ride over to pevensier out to fairlight over to wartling and i'm getting the same sense of travel actual proper travel that i used to that more of a sense of travel than i would get hopping on a plane to go off to the other side of the world on an assignment I've actually re-found travel, re-found a joy in travel. And so, I mean, that, in that sense, people have asked me, oh, you must be very excited to get back on a plane. And I'm thinking, actually, no, I'm, I'm really happy with my little 12-mile radius that I'm, I'm exploring on my bicycle. Um, I've, I've become a kid again in that regard. The world has become big for me once more. Miles take on new meaning. You know, to, to be... 62 as I am now, finding that same joy in miles and traveling proper distance, as I like to think of it, as I did when I was 12, half a century ago, is, is a real joy, is a real discovery. So, you know, in a way, I'd be happy not to get on a plane again. If I could make my living doing travel stories around Sussex, um, I don't think, I think National Geographic has a limit as to how many Sussex stories they're going to want. But, um, you know, I, I, I would. I, I, I have really rediscovered travel, and, and I'm realizing more and more that you know, travel is not a product of distance. It's, it's what goes on in your mind. It's what you see. It's the details. It's how, how rich in discovery the miles are. And, and on a bicycle, a few-mile ride, as you, I'm sure you know yourself, you, you discover things. You see things. And, you know, in terms of discovery of the local area where I lived, you know, these aren't any longer streets. There, there are corners where the shadow falls just so. And there, there, there's, there's little straightaways where, you know, you know the, the, the cow parsley is going to catch the sun and, 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 and really boom, lift up a, a, an image. So, I mean, you, you, all these little details come into play. So I'm, I feel like I'm living in this really rich tapestry, which I was completely unaware of before. And seeing things in a space of 10 miles, more of a sense, I say, more of a sense of travel than you get going any number of miles by normal means. Almost a sort of hypersensitivity to your local environment in a way, I guess. I mean, we even noticed that on the ride out, you know, I commented on where the golf course gives way to the cows grazing in the adjacent field or uh, just the sense of the, the headwind dropping a little bit just as we got, um, you know, into that sort of bow of the hill that we were we were cycling up. I guess you sort of you you create all manner of things about any particular day because you notice the winds coming off the left today rather than off the right. Yes, I mean the you you really become much more attuned to nature. Um, like I say, I, I I know the tide tables as, as well as the fishermen do. I I know the phases of the moon. I know. Where the, where the sun is going to be and, and the sunrise times to the minute. Um, and so, yeah, and I say the wind direction, uh, the declination of the sun. I, yeah, I follow all these things on websites and you know, look at these things. I plan my, my, my week ahead, looking at the weather reports. 
so yeah, you become much more attuned to the to the natural world as as well. You're, you're not you know when you're going around in a car or a train, you're you're aloof. You're you're behind glass. You're in a cocoon. Uh, on a bicycle, you're vulnerable. You're out there and and um, for good and bad. But uh, yeah, so you you become much more attuned to to nature. I think it was uh, Hemingway wrote uh, from one of his dispatches in France in, in World War Two. As he was getting around on a bicycle a fair bit. He said, and a bicycle is the way you come to understand the contours of the land. And as you were just saying, you, you notice when the, when, the, when the wind dies down or the hill picks up that little bit, you know, you wouldn't notice in a car maybe a little, little grade, but you do notice it on a bicycle, whether you're gently going downhill and picking up pace without work or whether you're having to, to dig in a little bit more and, and, and move along. So you know the contours, the whole physicality of the world becomes becomes real. I mean, you, you, it's a real sense of genuine travel. And this project has gone beyond the publication of the first feature. I mean, you're still getting up at three in the morning, studying the the sunset times, the sunrise times. Sorry, and the, um, you know the, the weather forecasts to make sure that you're going to get good conditions for uh, photographing the landscape. Is this something that you could see yourself doing? A bit further afield. Yes, yes, I, I absolutely could. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking you know, about. I, I've cycled a fair bit in in, in Britain, uh, well, around the world actually. But uh, I think Britain it particularly lends itself to this kind of thing. We have these these lovely little lanes, which are just you know they lend themselves to a romanticized cycling. I mean, this is where you know, Britain is where cycling began, really. Proper, you know. Starley inventing the, the the safety bicycle in 1885. This is you know where it all happened, but yeah, there's there's some other places. I I you know thinking of I've cycled through Wales and and, and loved it. I've done a lot of cycling in Orkney on, on an assignment for Geographic where I brought my bicycle. Um, so there, there, there's lots of little parts. I, I can certainly see myself going further afield. But at the same time, you know, it's like they say about going into a river. You're never in the same river twice. I go out on the marsh in the morning, and it, it's never the same two days in a row. So there's always something to discover. I was up at a little a little village up in the Weald, a little lane near a village, um, last week, and there was these this thick ground mist in the hollows, when a, just when the sun was coming over uh, the ridge line, and this this brilliant diffuse golden light coming through the the mists illuminated this this particular curve and you know, I, I was shooting it and it was it became a place I'd never seen before I looked at the images later and it, it was unlike I mean I've ridden down this road this little lane many times but it was a new place it was brand new I'd never seen anything like it before and you know I I won't see that again but there'll be other things that'll come along so that you know it is it, a case of continual renewal um, so there's still much to, much to explore here in my little pocket of Sussex. But yes, I am thinking of further afield. When it came to putting the feature together for the New York Times, were you in complete control of the photographs that got chosen for that particular feature? And, and how did you go about at selecting the ones that would tell the story that you wanted to tell? Well, uh, they were really wonderful to work with. The, the editor and the layout person, they're fabulous to work with. They wanted a large selection. And after 14 months of doing this daily, I had a large selection. I, I sent them, I think, about 150 images. And I, I was quite flattered when they, the editor uh, 
contacted me and said, well, we're really, really having a hard time picking them. Um, we've got a lot more we want to use. And, and she had a selection that, that, that she wanted. And, and she understood intuitively what I was doing. I, I had, you know, I mean, that when I was shooting the Panama hat people, I, it was for them I shot. So I, I knew them already, really liked, really liked and respected their work. So, yeah, it was it was a very, very good, very wonderful collaborative experience. Yeah, great people to work with. I mean, it's interesting to me because often we don't appreciate the things that are right under our noses. I know the, the Hastings and St. Leonard's Observer, if it's still going, um, and, and apologies if it is still going. Is it still going? Yeah, Roth. Um, that's the paper I remember from when I was down here. It's not the sort of thing that a local paper would publish about its own local environment in a funny way. And yet here we have this global brand of the New York Times taking an interest in this little corner of England. And I, I joked when we were out riding, you know, is this going to lead to an influx of, of tourists from New York when when the world does open up fully to tourism and travel? Just, it strikes me as quite funny that sometimes we don't appreciate the things that are right under our nose. Yeah, I think that, that that's probably true. I've, I've spoken to people and they say, well, you know, what's there to shoot in, in you know, you, you've ridden every single lane around here. What, what more could you possibly want? And I'm thinking, Oh gosh, no! There's there's so much yet, you know, that I haven't done, uh, and I keep finding, you know, more. Even on the Marsh Road, which I've ridden countless, literally countless times. The other day, I I, I found a new a new spot, and I think, well, why didn't I notice this before? But you know, sometimes it just takes the right fall of light. But no, there is so much to uh, to explore, and and yes, people don't realize uh, what you know, what is right in front of them, and so yeah, I've heard I've heard from a lot of people that are saying they never knew that. Hastings St. Leonard's looked like this, or Bex Hill looked like this, but it does. Uh, someone was telling me, you know, Bex Hill looks like it's on the Mediterranean. Well, some days it does, some days it doesn't, but, you know, on a good day, yeah. Um, and that's it. I, I, I look, you know, I, I plan to be places to get the shot that I want. Um, you know, again, the, one of the shots that made it look very, Medi Bex Hill looked very Mediterranean was a shot I took of one of these shelters set against the dazzling blue sky and blue sea and you have this you know this white victorian shelter and blue sky and yes it does you know bright light i waited till mid more till much uh, mid morning for me is is like 7 30 but um you know until uh, it was till the sun was up high enough so i had this 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 bright flat light and um you know uh, so yeah you had this 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 mediterranean look um, there's a corner in St. Leonard's on the seafront. So I'm a big Edward Hopper fan, the American realist painter from the, you know, and his famous painting, Nighthawks. You know, you might be familiar with it with a cafe lit up on the corner. There's a, there's a little um, corner on the uh, London Road coming down to, to Grand Parade. When there was a shop lit up, it was, it was after hours, it was just the night lights in the shop. I was riding by it, and my gosh, that's Nighthawks. So I set up the camera, and I, and I have myself riding through a take. A night, not an exact take, obviously, but you, know, you, you can look at it, and you instantly know the painting I'm referring to. So, yeah, and, and people say, well, I never, never thought of that. To be fair, I hadn't either until I started really looking around myself. When you're on a bicycle, which is, you know, brings you into the, you know, intimately in, into your surroundings, and you add that to a, a photographer's eye to that, and, 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 you know, things, associations, things come alive that you, you never see, even on a bicycle. 
And so, yeah, I saw this. And again, that was a thing where it took me half a dozen visits to that corner on different days to get, uh, and you know, I don't know how many shots I would have taken, takes and, and different angles, moving the camera uh, up, down, sideways, looking for the, just the right light in the right day. You know, I come home and I look at the, so I mean, it took I don't know, at least six, six visits to that corner to get the one shot. In a week's time, I'm heading off to Scotland to ride around the country. And uh, while we don't have the luxury to slow down entirely because we've got to reach a certain point at the end of each day, um, there will be, uh, I think, an attitude change, a, a shift in my mindset. It's not the type of cycling I've done an awful lot because I've never had the luxury of being able to just go off for uh, the best part of a fortnight and ride point to point every day. Any tips on how to kind of slow my mind down and, and make the most of it and, and just keep my eyes open? Well, I think it's just uh, a love of your surroundings. I mean, just looking for, I, I love light. I love color. So I, I'm looking for that automatically when I'm, when I'm out there and, and just looking at the way things, you know, come together. Um, just be aware of the small things. You know, the, the dew drops on a spider web when you're going by, the sound of the cattle munching the grass. You, 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 you know, the, the, the landscape becomes, can become alive for you. Not just the country landscape, but the, but the, the rural landscape. I mean, you, again, I, was, I, I saw nighthawks out of, out of you know, what was a, a dead corner. You know, it, it, I, that's the question of just letting your mind, letting your mind run, run free and, and exercising your imagination along with your legs. That's, I guess that's the thing. Do the ankle work and the imagination at the same time. Roth, that sounds like the perfect note to end on. I've really enjoyed our ride along the coast and I've enjoyed even more listening to you talk about your, I was going to say your work, but it's not really work, is it? It's, it's more of a... It's, a... it's an avocation, I guess. It's, it's, um, it's become my job. I, I've treated it very much as a job. I mean, I had no other paying work, but I did treat this as a job. I mean, I'm up at three o'clock in the morning I come back, I you know, then recharge my headlight, my tail light, my camera battery. I sit down, I edit photos for several hours, and then you know, take a nap in the afternoon because I'm absolutely shattered. I hope you enjoyed listening to Roth as much as I did. In a way, his was the ultimate lockdown project, and I was inspired by the way he has sought to capture the ever-changing look to familiar surroundings while tethered to his home for more than a year. The world's beginning to open up a bit now, which allows Simon Gill and I to embark on our trip to Scotland for Explore next week. I'm really excited because I've never done a ride like this before. I've done training camps lasting seven or ten days, but on those you set off and return to the same place each day. I've done short two or three day bikepacking trips, but I've never experienced this sort of journey where the road is stretching out in front of us for the best part of a fortnight, and all being well, we won't cover the same bit of road twice. I'm looking forward to it immensely, and as I said at the start, the story of the Tour de Cos will be broadcast daily for Explore, and I hope that you'll tune in. Now, if football is not your thing, don't be put off. We're not going to be talking about offside decisions and diamond formations. The point of the trip is to see Scotland, the familiar parts and the less familiar, in all its glory. So it'll be more of a travelogue than an episode of Match of the Day. This has been an episode of Explore by The Cycling Podcast. The producer was Will Jones.
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.